Welcome to Aircrew Interview. I'm Mike Young, your host, and today's podcast is with Mike Napier. Mike is an ex-RAF Tornado GR1 pilot, and this episode he talks about flying it in operations and other aspects of flying the aircraft. He also chats about being an author and flying the Hawk as an instructor. So please enjoy and don't forget to subscribe at youtube.com forward slash aircrew interview. So Michael, how did you become interested in aviation? I've actually been interested in it as for as long as I can remember actually and it, it's a bit like saying how long have you had your right leg or whatever it is. Um, I think as I said to you earlier on, every little boy wants to be a pilot or an engine driver and most people then get a, grow up and get a proper job and I never did. But yeah, as far as I can remember, I've been completely obsessed by aeroplanes and flying and uh, I guess my first kind of realisation of that, I've got this memory, we lived in um, Aden in the mid-60s, was um, walking along a road with a huge red cardboard box that I just inherited for something. I was going to use it for, you know, to go take it down to my mate's house. And I remember seeing these two hunters going whistling across the, uh, uh, from Mario F. Cormaxa. And I remember looking at it going, wow, that's amazing. And I think that's probably where the seed was planted. But uh, yeah, uh, it continued from there, really. So I've, just, I've always just been obsessed with aeroplanes and flying, and uh, that's all I've ever wanted to do. Sadly. <laughs> probably shows I'm very unimaginative, really. There we go. <laughs> So what was your first uh, aviation experience? Um, I, I guess it depends how you define that really, but in terms of being a passenger on an aeroplane, I can remember being, again, probably back from somewhere like Aden, sitting in a, a VC-10 airliner coming back, but the first time I actually sat in an aeroplane kind of properly that, that one might fly was a chipmunk air experience flight, and uh, again, that was, I was a kind of... 14 year old but quite a small 14 year old so I had this huge great parachute which was twice as big as me dangling from my bum and I sort of lobbed into the back of this um, chipmunk and uh, and off I went and I kind of always assumed that aeroplanes would be lovely and smooth this thing's a rattling old bus and uh, you know it was that thing of trying not to be sick as the guy flew you around and you sort of little sick bag there so yeah that's my first one it was it yeah it was kind of not quite what I'd expected but equally well it was, it was, it was quite interesting really I thought yeah actually I could do this so what year did you join the RAF? I joined the RAF in 1978 and I was a university cadet and basically that meant that they paid for me to go to university, paid me while I was at university, um, taught me to fly in the university air squadron while I was there for three years and then at the end of it I was kind of um, automatically inducted into the RAF, into the full training system so uh, and, and then it's into, in, in, you know, as if I'd kind of joined from, from straight away as it were. And did you have a type you wanted to uh, fly on? Yeah, I actually wanted to fly Phantoms, which uh, is something that I wouldn't want to admit to people like Dave Gleddell and people like that. But yeah, that was the thing that really took. I wanted to be a Phantom pilot. And uh, actually, as we after um, I'd been through basic flying training at Cranwell, we had to, there was a hold up in, in the training system, and we were told to go and lose ourselves for three months, where it was. And I was sent out to Guttersloe, uh, and I was there. The flight I was there as the um, station flight safety officer, and I shared an office with this guy called um, I Bruce Cogram, I think it was, and he. Um, he was Mr. Harrier, and uh, day one started with him saying, Okay, so what do you want to fly? And I said, I want to fly Phantom, sir. And there was the old kind of 
I can see what's being crossed off the Christmas card list as he went, oh, loser. <laughs> but yeah, that was it. That's what I wanted to fly. And it really wasn't until I got to the tactical weapons unit where I'd sort of realised that my my abilities really lay at kind of in the low level world. And I really enjoyed flying at low level. I thought, actually, do you know what? I need to get to the mud moving world. Yeah, so having started um, in... Uh, 78 as, as a university cadet I was kind of automatically enrolled in the university air squadron and that uh, involved well I thought it was involved lots of flying and not to, you know, popping in for the occasional lecture but actually when I arrived they said right you, you're now paid by the Air Force you're paid to get a degree so you will work and you can fly once you've passed your exams in the first year uh, so, yeah, I, I wish I passed my exams, obviously, and then uh, we had summer camp, and so I learnt to fly, because I'd learnt to fly the kind of two summers previously, because um, I had a flying scholarship. So back to the Air Force and to the Bulldog, and so I kind of learnt to fly all over again on the Bulldog, which was, it was a, it was a lovely machine, actually, because it, it was, it, as uh, light aircraft go, it's tremendously powerful, it's sort of some, I can't, I, you know, I can't remember, I think there's about two, 230 horsepower, something like that, but, but it's quite a powerful machine. Uh, it used to go downwind at 100 knots, you'd say, wow, that's really, that's really impressive. Um, so yeah, I spent three years kind of learning to fly the Bulldog, and that, well, I got about 100, just shy of 150 hours actually in three years, which is pretty good going really, and that took us all right from, you know, starting from you know, effects of controls one right through, we did end up doing low level navigation and uh, close formation and a bit of instrument flying as well, so it's kind of a bit of everything really. Um, and having done that, that kind of qualified me for the, what was known as the short course at Cranwell on the Jet Provost when I got decided so to go to initial officer training, which was kind of 18 weeks, a bit longer for me, of having your brain removed and running around lots. And then you started flying on the Jet Provost, and that was the Jet Provost 5, which was quite a sort of swept up machine. It had uh, it had quite a powerful engine, it had um, a pressurised canopy, um, and because the, the guys who um, started, went up to Yorkshire, ended up doing, they started on the Jet Provost 3, which is a kind of, um, well, a heap of donkey droppings, really, as far as I can work out. So we, we did what I was on the 5, and that was, it's basically the same thing, i.e. circuits, and then into, you know, aerobatics and that kind of stuff, which we've done on the Bulldog, but, but you're doing it again in the JP, which was kind of faster, more powerful, a bit of low-level navigation, um, close formation, night flying, instrument flying, a bit of everything. The same thing, bigger aeroplane, goes faster, so all the numbers are bigger, but basically the same kind of stuff. And uh, so I finished there in front end of 83. Uh, that's when I popped across to Goodersloe and upset um, the people there by saying I want to fly Phantoms instead of Harriers. And then I arrived at Valley to fly the Hawk in... Um, kind of September, October time, 83. Um, and that was kind of where it all, all really kicked, you know, picked, all kicked off for me because uh, I, f I found the JP really hard work. I, I, you know, I wasn't a natural. It was really hard. The airplane I found was to be a real pig. And I can't honestly say hand on heart that I enjoyed flying it or that I enjoyed the year that I spent at Cranwell flying it but we pitched up a valley and it's just completely different I mean the, I think the atmosphere space was different because Cranwell's kind of very sort of uh, very stuffy and oldie worldy but um Valley was brilliant. It was just—it's just an amazing place. You got there, and just the whole atmosphere. It was a real kind of yeah. It was yeah, the fast jet thing. It was all kind of you know, testosterone and uh, kerosene, and you know, boys having a good time. And the Hawk was—it's uh, it just an amazing machine. It's like a sports car, really. It's the sports car of the skies. Um, and 
again, it, the syllabus is pretty much the same. You do the same stuff. You've got a neat flare, unfencing trolls, you know, stalling, spinning, aerobatics, low level nerf, um, close formation, all the same old stuff. Um, but in the Hawk, which we, everything just seemed to come very, very naturally to me, or, or, or much more naturally, shall I say, and it, and it was um, it was a real pleasure. And so at the end of that course was when we were given our wings. So I, I, I graduated in Feb 84 on 96 Hawk course and uh, got my wings from Sir Michael Beetham um, and uh, felt very proud of myself. Then there was a little bit of a hold-up in the system because there were so many guys going through training. And th- this was a time, remember, when they were, uh, uh, the, the tornado was coming in, you said, needed loads and loads of pilots. So the machine was kind of, the sausage machine was full-on, pumping people out. Uh, but they, they, they kind of weren't quite the sausage. So they had to wait for, in fact, it was about six months, I think. So I did a quick refresher at Valley, then I arrived at Chivna for the Tactical Weapons Unit. And that was kind of where, you know, I'd started in 78, flown the ball, flown the JP, flown the Hawk all red and white aeroplanes, all doing pretty much the same kind of thing one after the other. Suddenly we arrived at, um, you know, back end of 84, completely different. Arrive, um, the aeroplanes are painted in camouflage, which is quite sort of different, you know, sort of psychologically you go, wow. Um, but the syllabus was completely different, and it was taken as red, you could fire the machine. But now we're into, you know, instead of going effective controls and stalling, we're into, right, close formation, battle formation, um, air combat. Um, and that was kind of mind-blowing really for, for a number of reasons um, firstly because you you had a, you had one look and then one go and then you moved on to something else so you never really had time to kind of get competent or feel comfortable you kind of just moving on all the time and the learning curve was kind of massively steep um, but things like I mean here's stupid things so Close formation did in the Hawk, you know, it's, you know right next to the, to the you know, your next guy, uh, lining up with the references, so you're really close in there. Battle formation, you're actually in the Hawk, you're two kilometres a mile apart, flying sort of line abreast, and that sounds all right, but if the other airplane's really well camouflaged, then you can't see it. So that's the first problem, is you can't see it. And the other thing is that if you're going along in line abreast, and for example, you want to turn over there, if people just go like that, suddenly you're out of formation. So the way that you sorted out was you did this crossover. So you, and a couple of the sort of stories start with at Chivna, you'd start off and you'd go right turn. And the way you turned was you both turn towards each other, cross over, and then turn back again to roll out and uh, so you had to basically know who was going to avoid who because obviously you don't want to hit each other because you point at each other um, and then you also the, the aeroplanes when we went through Valley had this thing called AHARS which is a really good um, gyro compass system the ones at Hawk were pre-AHARS sorry at um, Chivna were pre-AHARS and um, so every time you went to a hard turn because all the turns were like 4G the compass just carried on spinning so you couldn't actually, so if you tried to roll out on the compass you couldn't so you had to go in and uh, you, you, before you turned you'd look you know, I need to point at that over there so you then whack across to your mate avoid him or, or, or he'd avoid you whichever it was and then you turn back again and point towards wherever it was and uh, and then roll out and try and look at this airplane that you couldn't see because it was camouflaged um, but that was the kind of low level navigation battle formation we got into um Air combat, which is perhaps the sport of kings, it's brilliant. You go off, imagine going off with your mate in another aeroplane, and then you point away and you point at each other. The next thing is you've got to try and get try and get on your mate's tail, and uh, it was the sport of kings. It was just so much fun, really, really fun. And it's actually that was the one thing that I was any good at all the way through flying training. I actually could do that. Um, and from there we on to weaponry, and again that I mean there's a massive 
although we'd obviously joined the Air Force and it was military, kind of we'd flown red and white aeroplanes up to then and done, it's been academic learning how to fly. But suddenly when you tell, right, point pink body towards the ground and fire a gun or drop a bomb, I mean, it, it is just amazingly, A, exciting, B, quite frightening, and C, kind of puts everything together, kind of realise what you've just spent the last so many years learning how to do so that was a kind of really sort of moment where you go gee this is what yeah this is what we're here for um and but again you kind of got one go at it one show one go off you go right have a go yourself that's it next and on to the next thing and the whole thing wound up to um what's called the sap phase which is similar to tack profile and you ended up the last one you ended up leading a pair that was bounced so you had somebody going trying to shoot you down while you went off and you had to run you did a first run attack at the range i think there, i think it was timed as well so you had to you know, get airborne on the right time and you know you watched it again trying to kill out and then you had to get off one of your mate was trying you know uh, trying to stop you and drop a bomb and then you went off and you attacked i think two different targets out in your know, bridges or something out in the middle of wales uh, while this other airplane was trying to stop you doing it um and and that and that was the end of this frenzied um, sort of I don't know four months or whatever it was at Chivener. At the end of which they then decided where you're going to go to next. And um, there were various kind of obviously the great thing if you're a pilot is to do it yourself and a single seat don't need a navigator. Um, the Harrier was the kind of top thing and, and basically the top guys went there. But you did have to be shit off to go to the Harrier. Not let me tell Harrier pilot that, obviously. Um, because it was a very, very difficult aeroplane to fly and because it didn't have very much kit, so really you were you were the sort of the computer if you if you like. So you had to be you had to be really on top of your game there. Um, Jaguar, <clears throat> again quite a tricky aeroplane to fly and you're on your own. Um, and then you were into Tornado and uh, Phantom at that stage two guys phantom quite difficult to fly but relatively in terms of um the job a little bit straight and more a little bit easier i suppose um although phantom pilots would probably disagree um tornado ground attack um flying close to the ground all that kind of stuff and kind of needing you to be pretty much on the ball so um and actually my I, although I'd obviously wanted to fly the Phantom all the way through training, actually what I discovered was that I really enjoyed the low-level environment. I really enjoyed the kind of low-level um, attack thing. So I decided actually really what I wanted to do was to fly the Tornado. I should actually point out here that I was not terribly good at flying in circuits or SV, and the Phantom was quite a handful. So I think had I had gone to the Phantom, I probably would have found it quite difficult, actually, because it was, um, I gather, quite a handful in the circuit, whereas Tornado was actually pretty straightforward, really. Um, but yeah, at the end of that, I was sectioned to the tornado. Michael talks about his squadrons, bases, and his roles within the RAF. Yeah, well, um, so I arrived at, uh, at Bruggen, which at that stage had a wing of three squadrons of Tornado GL1. Um, it was about to come four. The other squadron came, it was nine squadron, which came out from, um, from Honington uh, in, I think, about 86, back end of 86, I think. Um, but for the moment, there were just three squadrons there. And we were the um, <clears throat> kind of the front line, as we saw it, um, of, the RAF, of the RAF in Germany. There were three squadrons, three um, strike attack squadrons up at Larbrook, flying to one one and three strike attack squadrons at, um, at Bruggen. Strike attack meaning A strike is, that's nuclear stuff, so that was our prime role was nuclear strike. Um, and the aeroplanes were there ready to go. So um, we had guys on QRA, um, strike loaded aeroplanes, and they were part of the NATO kind of, um, uh, I was, I'm, I'm lost for words for a moment, but um, 
uh, basically put, yeah, put part of our answer to the Warsaw Pact. Um, <clears throat> And the, the, the so our role for that was that, that 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 was the first thing we had to meet was whatever the um, Sakura Supreme Command of Europe said he, how many strike airplanes he needed, we had to provide those, and anything that was left over was then available for attack operations. Um, in terms of wartime stuff, we were tasked with um, attacking the um, Soviet air force um, airfields in eastern Germany. So all of those with uh, good old JP two three three, and also the um, uh, strategic SAM sites, SAM five sites um, in East Germany. So we were um, we were to take those out in the in the case of war. And really, our time in Germany, apart from the exercises, which which went on and on, um, you know, a couple of times a month, the sermons would go off at two o'clock in the morning, you're racing to work, and the guys at Curé would, would come to combat to to cop the redness ready to go. Um, and um, so, apart from the outside, that our routine training was basically kind of attack training, fly off as a pair, fly around Germany. Um, and we'd uh, do simulated attacks on a couple of targets. We'd go to the various ranges that were around. So we had Nordhorn range was the prime one, uh, which was um, <clears throat> up sort of kind of north of Larbrook. Um, there was one uh, flea horse, which was out on, on the Dutch coast. Um, there was Pampa range, which was in Holland, which wasn't very far away. We didn't get very often, but that, that was easy, actually, because he got there. And there was... So, um, to, sorry, to step back, Nordhorn range was kind of in the middle of nowhere. So you pitched up, and luckily, because we had a moving map display, so you could follow it, go eat. And the, the initial point for the attack was it was a, a minor road junction. <laughs> it was funny, a minor road junction in Germany. I mean, there are millions of them. But there, so you found this road junction, off you went, and, the, and, and there was a target to attack. Um, at Flea Horse, which was um, on the Dutch coast, there was you started off at this huge great. Uh, there was a, um, a causeway across the top of the kind of what we used to call the Zyder, whatever it's called now, uh, Iselmere, and uh, you set off and you're just heading towards the tip of this island that was kind of very, very, very low, and the target was there. Um, but if you went to uh, Pampas Range. It was Helkstrin, actually, it was called. And there was this massive great lead-in all the way along, and the target was a huge great yellow board that you couldn't possibly miss. And it was brilliant. So you go there, if you want to get the range scores up, right, going to, go to Pampas, <laughs> round you went. So that, that was brilliant. There was also actually a range down at Siegenberg, down in southern Germany, just south of Nuremberg, and occasionally we get slots on that. Um, and again, that, that was great. In fact, it was great because the rain or range safety officers there were, were American Air Force guys who were kind of were sent there for a week, and they were all air, they were pilots or navigators, so they were quite generous with the scoring. Actually, they go, yeah, it's good enough. Direct hit. <laughs> um, so, uh, and again, because that was a little bit higher, there were various. Um, the other ranges were all kind of at sea level. But that was actually a couple of thousand feet, I think, and that had quite a big effect because it had to be, you had to be really um, correct in terms of the height sensor that you used for, to tell the bomb how high it was before it went off. Because if, you know, if, if it's a sea level, you can just use a radar altimeter and that tells you. But obviously, um, if you're a little bit higher off, you have to get it exactly right. Um, so that's a bit of a challenge, really. Um, and, th and that was it, really. So we used to flat around Germany. Germany was, at that stage, it was full of A, the army, so there are no end of targets available. You know, there, were, there was um, tanks deployed, there were bridges being built across the, you know, the Vaser at Hamel. There was guys on exercise. There were you know, SAM sites. There was all sorts of stuff. So when you came in the morning, you go, right, we're going to find two targets. There was no problem at all finding that. And similarly, the airplane or the uh, sky was just full of airplanes. Uh, all the guys from... Um, 
uh, Wildenroth down with Phantom guys would, would launch off and they'd put caps up there all over the place um, there'd be F-16s out there'd be F-15s out from Susterberg and west of it um, so when you went out into Germany it was the airplane yeah, also the, the skies were full of aeroplanes um, so we'd do our attacks and we'd find out where the fighters were going to be and whistle through their uh, their um, caps their combat air patrols and do a bit of affiliation with them so yeah and then go to the range so it's kind of full on really it was it was great fun yeah an hour and three quarters of us they're rushing around Germany hair on fire that's why we've got none left <laughs> Ian Michael talks about flying the Tornado GR1 The, the tornado, it was a massive step up from the hawk because the hawk was actually very, very simple. When it kind of, when you, you uh, the hawk's like a glove that you kind of put on, and the tornado was, was actually was bigger. Um, but when you sat in it, it was quite a comfy, roomy um, cockpit, and everything was kind of where where you kind of want it to be. Um, throttles on on the left hand side, outboard of that, your flat lever, and just inboard a wing sweep lever. Um, most of the stuff on the on the right hand side on, on the console down there was stuff that you probably didn't need to do an awful lot with, um, sort of air conditioning and, and, and that sort of stuff. Uh, but in front, the kind of, the, the whole thing was um, kind of dominated by there was a big circular moving map display which showed you where you were or where the airplane thought you were, and uh, above it, and you kind of looked right the way through it on, onto the screen was the head up display which had all the flying instruments you needed, and that's actually the prime. Um, kind of instrument flying um, eight or, or those are the prime flying instruments. There were actually sort of traditional ones down on the right hand side of, uh, um, of that under the combing, and on the left hand side that's where you had the engine instruments. Um, but everything's where you want it. But it was it, it was very easy, kind of like a nodding dog, really, to look in between the HUD and the moving. Where am I? Rather than actually looking out. Um, the airplane itself, once you got your mind around its complexity. Um, was actually very straightforward to fly. Um, I say that having found it quite difficult to start with, but I kind of eventually I got used to it and, and, and got to know and, and got it to work properly for me. But um, yeah, it was a very straightforward airplane to fly. It was a kind of, um, well, it had a fly-by-wire system, so the, yeah, the clever electronics took out all the kind of difficult handling characteristics. Um, in the circuit, you put the wings forward. In fact, it flew like a straight-wing aeroplane, so you didn't have any of the buffets and all that kind of stuff that you might have in a Phantom or a Lightning or something like that. So it was very, very straightforward. Um, and once you, you, you got airborne, you uh, cruising speeds of uh, sort of 420 knots, you'd be the wing halfway back in 45 wing. And again, um, the electronics kind of took out any peculiarity. It, it, it flew like a, kind of like a big hawk grid in some respects. But with all the drag underneath it, it was it, it was it was much heavier in the controls. But it, it, it was kind of quite easy to fly, um, quite pleasant to fly, very comfortable to fly. I mean, at a low level, it um, and again, you know, the hawk would bounce around, but the, the, the tornado just yeah, just stuck there. Um, quite a high wing loading, so you'd be very comfortable flying at low level for long distances, and you whistle through the mountains, and that be bounced. Well, if you would be bounced around in a hawk in the tornado, you just cut straight through it. It was a very kind of stable. Um, airplane, very very comfortable, um, reasonably manoeuvrable actually for its day. And again, there was a um, in forty five. Well, uh, there was a thing called manoeuvre flap, where, which was just on the throttle. Actually, you kind of just blipped your thumb down that gave you move flap. So in forty five, we just gave you slat, which kind of well. It, once you got the speed below about sort of three 
Merth 360s range lots around about there, you pop the wings forward, um, and then again the move that give you flap as well, and it turned pretty well. And certainly, you'd out turn a Phantom. So that kind of thing in Germany, you whistle around, you find a Vilmar um, a, a, a Phantom and sneak behind him, <laughs> and then you knew he couldn't get away from you because you could turn better than he could. The only problem is that the Germans had F4Fs, I think it was, which had slats on, which turned even better. So if you got stuck on the German, you go, oh dear me, <laughs> trying to bug out. Um, but yeah, it was. Um, it, yeah, it was, it, was, it was a very pleasant environment actually, and it was, I would say it was virtually vice free. Um, the, the thing about it was that on the Hawk, for example, being straight on the airplane, when you're manoeuvring, particularly kind of um, you know, air combat and that kind of stuff, you'd want to uh, manoeuvre right on the edge of, of, of the stall so you'd get this buffet so you'd just sit there and really like buffet and you could you know the wing would kind of talk to you if you like so if you pull a bit harder you get more fit you're pulling too much so you just relax a bit the the toy had no buffet so there was nothing and all you actually had was just next to the hub there was an alpha gauge which told you how much uh, you know what your angle attack was and there was a limit on it and i, can't, I think it's 21 21 alpha and if you went above that then you might depart the airplane but there was no warning, so the only thing was you had to look and see what the what the alpha gauge, you know, what the alpha gauge was reading. So yeah, there was no feedback at all. Um, there was a thing fitted called spills, which was the spin prevention and instrument, uh, sorry, incident limitation system, um, which if the other starting um, standards agency had anything to do with, they would have uh, they would have banned it because it did neither of those things. Because um, I. Did I know various people who had departed the aeroplane with the spills on? In fact, I myself did on one occasion. We were, we were it was an air combat sortie, and we, we bugged out, and um, we were kind of nose up, pushing out, and I was looking over my shoulder, and I looked back and I thought, right, I'll pitch back now, and I pulled the stick back, and as I pulled the stick back and right, the air, the, I just felt the nose going left, <laughs> and I thought, mm, that shouldn't be right, and uh, yeah, in fact, my, my nav at the back said, he said, yeah, first thing I knew something was wrong, when he started saying, and it was the kind of mantra, if you lost control, is control centralised height monitor, air brakes in, <laughs> and, and I started saying that, and he went, ah, <laughs> but at the airplane, it came straight down, as soon as I released it, it just came straight back. So, yeah, spills that may or may not have worked. Um, but that was probably about the only vice that the aeroplane had, really. Um, it, was, it was actually a really vice-free and, and uh, yeah, user-friendly aeroplane, really. And, and everything's very... The view was pretty good from, from the front cockpit, less so from the back, because the, um, the nav sat right between the air intakes, and they were kind of like going out, so you couldn't see down. At low level, not a problem. Obviously, once you start going up to, to medium level, as we did out in the Gulf, then suddenly you know you can't see down beneath you, and that's where the threat is. Um, but from the front seat, pretty good. The only thing was there was a big, a massive, great big sort of combing that came up like that, and there were blind spots either side. Um, and a couple of very good mates of mine got killed actually mid-air collision, and probably the airplane coming across was actually in that blind spot, which they, they never saw it. Um, so that's the kind of you had really have to move your head around. Um, but yeah, it was it was it was, it was actually a lovely aeroplane to fly, and I I kind of flew it for almost ten years, and I and I kind of really felt at home, and you know towards the end, I, you know, to start with it was a bit oh my god what's happening, but yeah towards the end I really got to feel at home in it and really enjoyed it and and really loved it as well. Yeah, it's a great machine. The Tornado cockpit was was actually it's really well laid out. It's very ergonomic. Um, as I mentioned earlier on, the on, to your left hand you had the, the throttles, uh, outboard of those a flap lever, inboard the wing sweep lever. Behind that was a thing called CSAS, which the command control organisation, command 
there, Julia, I can't even remember what it's called now, or what that stood for, but basically that was in, in round terms the fly-by-wire system. So that was the, the stick was actually connected not to pulleys and ropes, but actually to wigglies that went through this box. Um, so that was all there in case you got any kind of failures or anything like that. Just ahead of that was actually the terrain-following radar system, and that was a kind of... The thing about Tornado was that it was the first aeroplane that the RAF had ever had that had a, a low-level um, all-weather capability. Basically, you had this terrain-following radar. So the deal was that you would um, you'd switch this radar on. Uh, if it was nice, if it was in bad weather, you'd then connect it to the autopilot um, using a little box of tricks down that was down by by your um, by your left thigh. Later, that got moved up to the to the combing, so so it was easier to see. Um, and then the aeroplane fly itself around on whatever route you put on, whatever the navigator said, and it would fly around at whatever height you dialed in, 500 feet at night. Um, automatics, <laughs> scary stuff. Um, so that, that was kind of the left-hand side of, 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 of the cockpit. Um, the right-hand side, I think, as I mentioned earlier on, had air conditioning and various bits and pieces, fuel, etc., down that side as well. Um, and then you had your flying instruments on, on the left-hand side, the instruments on the right-hand side, uh, with the moving map display, the head-up display, and then kind of either side of, of, of those display, the combing, there were two TV screens, and the left-hand side uh, was the e-scope, and that basically shows you what the terrain-following radar was looking at. So if you were doing automatic terrain-following, you'd go along in the, from the front seat, you'd make sure that down here you had all the right buttons pressed, about three buttons that you had to press, so you'd check your three white lights there. Um, You'd then look it up into the head of display, uh, and there would be a little T display showing that the train following radar was, was on, and there'd be a, a flight directed dot, and you'd check that the airplane was actually the the, the, the airplane symbol, the old pilot actually flying following the train, the the dot, and then you'd check the e-scope, and the e-scope was giving you like a sideways view of of the train ahead. Um, and the big thing that you were really interested in one was if you had what we call cutoff. So if a radar is looking at something and there's like a, a, a blank space it can't see beyond that so it'll, it'll tell you there's something there but it won't tell you what's beyond it and that's kind of cut off and so I, on we'd have a it was a, almost a continuous running commentary between the back seat and the front seat what you could see because he the guy on the back would have his uh, ground mapping radar and so I'd say I've got cut off at you know five miles and I'd, I'd talk down and then he'd say I've, um, he'd, he'd uh, agree that he had cut off on his radar screen as well, and I'd be looking to see there were a couple of lines on the e-scope which showed what well, the kind of avoidance that the airplane had to take, and you'd confirm. I say, okay, it's climbing over the ridge, and then because he had a longer range radar that's kind of slightly looking down, would say, oh, I'm painting beyond now, so you knew that you're painting on the ridge, you could see what's going on, and then you'd kind of monitor the autopilot. So there's a continuous banter between two of you as he went on on auto TF, uh, say checking so he knew that the autopilot was in, that it's all flying flight director. What you what you were seeing on the e-scope, he then what you see on the, the ground mapping radar and, and, and so it going backwards and forwards so that uh, you both knew what was going on because it was a great great way of killing yourself if you didn't get it right so well, like all these things really so there's a bit of an incentive there to to do that and again because we were kind of working together really as a you know as a hand in glove as a, as a really close-knit team you both needed to know exactly what the other guy saw air to ground stuff basically that was kind of run by the back seat you have a pre-planned target um the back seat would um 
you, you plan your attack from initial point down to the target itself. You'd identify in the planning stage various kind of radar offsets that he'd probably be able to see on the radar. And if you could actually mark those on the radar, then that went back into the computer, and the computer said, oh, hang on, you told me that that wood is X from the target, so if you say that's there, then the target must be there. So we kind of update the target position. So the backseater would kind of be there with his radar thing, trying to honing in on the radar position, so that when eventually you could see that you know, when eventually that, that became clear, you'd be able to find the, radar, the, the um, target itself on the radar. From the front seat, we do it on a, on a map. So we'd be looking out the window and we go, right, I'm going to see this wood after so many seconds, I'm going to see that river. And so we'd be thumbing our way down the map. So we'd be kind of working our way down that way. They'd be working that way. And hopefully we'd meet at the far end with his radar mark sitting over the target for me to find. Um, and again, if it was if it was night or if we TFRing because it was bad weather, then we'd totally do that on the navigator's mark. Obviously, looking out the window, you can be a bit more accurate because you can see what's going on. So there's the option there of, the, of taking over from the front seat saying, I've controlled this attack now, um, and marking it accurately for the computer to, to work out. So again, that was... Um, um, <clears throat> from the front seat, there was a kind of... It was like a, a big banana stuck here with a sort of Chinaman's hat on thing up. So you could actually take control... Once you saw the, where the target was, you could take control of the front seat and then move it around. Um, and then there was a final mode worthy of note which is called target opportunity so if you try on you suddenly saw a lot of tanks up front you go target opportunity and there was a button that you pressed at the front and that then armed all the the, the bombs or whatever he'd set in the back but again gave you a ground air to ground weapon aiming um picture in the head up display so again you could um it gave you basically a, a line showing where the bomb before a little sort of marker showing what if you if you press the bombs now they'll land here and you waited so that motored up through where it was this argument sorry, on this side, dunk, on the stick top, and you could drop weapons that way. Um, guns, again, there was a um, air-to-ground gun switch, which gave you, I think, gave you an air-to-ground gun um, picture, which was kind of like it gave you a fixed cross to show you where the airplane's pointing, it gave you a pipper to show where the, where, the, where the shells would land, and then a range ring around it. And uh, as you came in, you'd, you'd put the pipper on the target and wait for the range to come round. Um, You'd either ranging was either through the radar from the back seat or as a laser as well, so either of those, and then you could uh, then the, the um, firing it was off the trigger on the top the stick top. So uh, yeah, but and I say it was actually pretty well designed um, copy. Really. It, was, it, it was comfy, it was big, um, and things were pretty much where you wanted them to be. So uh, yeah, it was good. And finally, we get a personal side to Michael himself. So, Michael, you're also a Polish author. Like, tell me about yeah, that. Yeah. Well, I should actually... I'm going to point out Exhibit A here, which, uh, if I can just put that there, this is my first ever book, which is... Um, it's a book about Dusseldorf Flughaven, and I think this is probably almost 50 years old, actually. They're very fantastic drawings in here. So that's kind of where it all started. Um, and I first got into the idea of writing a book... Um, because I, I wrote up the history of 14 Squadron, which is um, a particularly fine squadron. And what I realised, because it had been out in the Middle East for most of its time, and then out in Germany, is nobody ever written it down. So that's how I got into the kind of book writing thing. I did a two-volume history of that. Um, and off the back of that, I'd written... I, I, I ended up busting an Achilles tendon about 15 years ago now, um, playing squash, silly thing to do. And I, well, I had nothing to do, I stuck my leg up in plaster. I thought I'd write a few things. I, I'd got, I'd, I'd kind of, through my time in the Air Force, I'd written a few things down, I kept some diaries, I'd written accounts of things, and I pulled all that together and, and um, 
into a book which nobody wanted to publish called Tornado of the Tigris. And then having written, having published, they said, oh, yeah, actually, so that was this one here, um, which is Tornado of the Tigris. And that um, is basically kind of the story of, you know, a, a little boy wanting to fly airplanes who eventually gets to fly tornadoes and the experience of flying tornadoes in Germany, almost 10 years' worth of, uh, of flying, a bit of time on the Hawk that I did as well as a tactics instructor, where there was some fantastic flying, and covering really kind of the end of the Cold War out in Germany. And then actually, I was instructing at the time at Chino, flying the Hawk, having a great time, when my mates were fighting a war over in, <laughs> over in uh, Iraq. And, um, but afterwards, of course, it, things carried on for quite a long while with no fly zones or rest of it. And I was involved in that. And also, while we were there, we were invited to go and show the Iraqis who was boss a couple of times. And so I was involved in a couple of missions there as well. And so kind of that, the, all that's covered in, in, in that particular book, which, um, w- um, you know, w- w- uh, w- which tells the story. And what I tried to do with it, really, was to, you know, when I look back on some of the books that I read, I think of Stranger to the Ground by Richard Bach. I think about F4 Phantom Pipes by Rob Press, those books that kind of put you there. And what I wanted to try was to capture the essence of what was it like to fly a tornado? What was it like to fly at low level? What was it like to you know, go fly over Iraq? And that, uh, well, you know, what was it like to flash around in a hawk and have, have loads of fun while he makes a fighting a war? Um, and, and that's kind of what I put in there. So I kind of hope that. You know, if someone wants to know what that was like, the book's there, and it'll kind of, you know, read it, and and, and, you, and you can live it. You know, it is, you know, take. Uh, hopefully, it takes you there. So that's where that came from, and I. Uh, the, the editor that I worked with on that said, "Well, might have you thought about, you know, somebody else a bit, you know, and how about?" And we thought about it, and. They, the, the, the airplane was really quite fascinating uh, was the Gloucester Javelin and I can now show you exhibit uh, C which is this one here um, Gloucester Javelin and you can buy books about the Javelin and they tell you how it was designed um, how it was test flown they'll talk about what colour it was where it might have gone because it was an airplane that was, uh, there was a lot of kind of um, potential for, um, for development which I never quite realised but there's about two pages in each of these saying, and by the way, the RAF flew them for 10 years, and then nothing else. And my thought was, well, what did the guys do with this aeroplane? And what, what could I put in? And kind of, I thought really, having, having flown kind of faster than myself, the bit that I could put in is, is the operational side of it. You know, what was it like to fly? What did the guys do with it? And I met some fascinating guys. I had a, 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 a virtually a whole day with um, Sir Freddie Sowery, who, uh, who commanded 46 Squadron in 1959, you know, before I was born. Um, what was it like to be a Javelin fly, um, Squadron Commander in those days? Yeah, amazing guy, really fascinating um, chat with him. I mean, he, he went on to be an air marshal. In fact, he wrote the forward for me. Um, I had a, a fantastic... Um, I spent lunch talking to Sir Richard Johns, who was Chief of the Air Staff, whom I remembered as a station commander when I was at um, my little brief visit to, to Goodersloe when I upset everybody saying I wanted to fly Phantoms. Um, again he'd flown his first tour as a javelin pilot and again talking to him about it was just fascinating and this aeroplane which was kind of the usual kind of crappy you know, British design was actually um, 
at the time was was cutting edge technology, was cutting edge in terms of operation capability, and it was the first airplane the RAF had that had missiles on it. It was the first tactical airplane the airplane had that the RAF had, had air to air fueling, and they did all this amazing stuff of right. We go, how, how does one get a squadron to Singapore? So they kind of worked it all out. They sent you know, well first, we'll start off by sending half a squadron halfway there, and then we'll send all you know, and and all the sort of goings that went on with that, an amazing sort of um, while at the same time kind of manning the front line of the Cold War in the air defence world and well how do we deal with jamming and how do we do this and they're out in Germany as well, well how do you and then the airplanes were in Cyprus big problem in uh, Rhodesia oh, send the guys off to uh, you know off to Zambia they're interesting stuff out in Singapore the um, uh, confrontation with Indonesia and so the squadron there suddenly found themselves on a like a thousand mile frontage trying to sort of defend it all um, and again talking to Mike Miller who's, who's, who was one of the squadron boss at the time it was fascinating talking to him you know, how, how they kind of got around all this and operating over Borneo being shot at by the Indonesian troops um, so you know there's some fantastic stuff there and it's, it's, a, it's, it's a fascinating aeroplane but what the guys got up to is absolutely amazing and, that, and that's kind of what I tried to instill and capture in that book as well so uh, yeah that's where I'm at with the, with the book writing I've just started I'm, I'm writing a, um, an operational history of the Tornado GL1 a subject very close to my heart um, but one of the fascinating things for me is actually as, as I mentioned I didn't fight in the Gulf War I was, I was instructing at Chiffin at the time but the guys who did them are, are very proud of what they did obviously and I'm able to get all the stuff from the three bases at Dharan at Tabuk and Bahrain and kind of fit that together for, for the whole picture of exactly what all the guys did together um, and later on you know, what the Tornado Force did over Kosovo where they were getting airborne from Bruggen they were, take, they were flying all these massively long sorties down air to air fueling over France going over Italy air to air fueling then going out over Kosovo then coming back again um, <coughs> operating from their home base so they get home and then the wife would say well you're late you know, I've, you know you're supposed to pick up the kids at half past four but you know I've been bombing the, you know, I've been bombing in Kosovo dear whatever um, and all that stuff Again, you know, that, that's what I'm looking at at the moment. So I'm doing the process of doing that, and there'll be some fantastic stories and photographs and gone as well, some stuff that you know hasn't been put together before, which again I hope will tell the story of what a what a wonderful airplane the Tornado was, but also what a wonderful bunch of mates used to fly it because they were some yeah some really top guys. No, I mean the only one I've been to recently for in fact the only one I've been to probably about as probably about almost 20 years so I did I went to Riyadh and I think it was the year before last um which I, it was interesting I I, I I said I did find it a bit strange in a way I probably from being slightly dislocated away from military flying now I did find it almost quite difficult really to be there and see or feel feel not part of it um but I suppose also because the things have kind of been toned down quite there aren't as many military airplanes there aren't as many kind of air shows as, as, as they once were but I do I mean the thing that really struck me on that was watching some bloke in it was an Italian transport airplane doing aerobatics in this thing Mr. Twin Engineer uh, transport airplane thinking <laughs> what's that? what's he doing now and it, I mean it was, it was more it's very very impressive but um, yeah that was part of the most impressive bit really <laughs> was, uh, I've got to the stage now where I've got a bit, a bit of being a bit of a crusty old git now where stuff gets airborne I was just thinking that's too loud and, <laughs> which is yeah not really the way things ought to be really so perhaps I'll need to yeah stand away and watch it from the distance or something if you could have flown anything else um, while you were a pilot, what would it have been? The yeah, any airplane that you fly as a pilot is the best airplane in the world. 
um, particularly as a fast jet pilot. So from my perspective, obviously, the Tornado GL1 is the best aeroplane in the world. But yeah, if I could fly anything else, it would be the F-15E Strike Eagle because that was just an amazing machine. And we, when we were in Doran operating with them, uh, it was just amazing to see this aeroplane. The thing that impressed me was it was kind of set up like the, you drive past them and they go the left-hand side of the aeroplane is air to ground and the right-hand side is air to air. And this aeroplane could actually... It could look after itself. It could take names and kick ass. And that was, I kind of think, the weakness in the Tornado GL1. It didn't have a really decent, credible air-to-air capability. Okay, it had a, it, we carried the A9L, which had a head-on capability. But in terms of... When you think back to the RAF of the 1970s flying you know, Phantoms in the air-to-ground mode, or air-to-ground uh, role with, um, with Sparrow um, air-to-air missiles and, and a decent air-to-air you know, PD radar... You think what could the tornado have been if it had that capability? You know, some sort of uh, you know radar, air-to-air radar, and some means of slaving whatever missile you've got to that would would be amazing. And the, um, the F-15 that got it all, and it got its amazing performance as well, which you know, particularly high level. I don't know what it's like at low level. It's probably pretty good because I suppose they loaded up with so much kit. But um, yeah, the tornado was was rock solid. Whether the F-15E is or not, I don't know. But um, yeah, so I'd love to. Have, I'd love to find out, <laughs> or love to have found out. Prove it to offer now. There you go. <laughs> <clears throat> now we have a couple of fun questions for you. Okay. And they're quite geeky. Excellent. So, <laughs> what was the fastest speed you ever reached? Um, I think it's probably just over six hundred odd knots. Uh, well, again, in terms of. Uh, one has to be quite pedantic here because do you talk about airspeed and if so is that indicated airspeed or true and all the rest of it um, but in terms of yeah proper speed I'd say probably over, over the ground probably just over 600 odd knots and that was at Goose Bay and uh, it was one year we were there doing our bits and pieces and one of the ground crews spotted that there were cracks on some of the wing pylons immediate panic ground the airplanes stop stop flying and our squadron boss at the time um, said hang on a minute uh, well let's just take the pylons off so we took the pylons off and then one of the other guys looked in the the release service and looked at it and said, well, hang on a minute all the, all, the, all the restrictions we had were dependent on all the pylons and the, the tanks and everything else that we had Suddenly we clean airplane and you turn over to page dunk, on the back and suddenly all the speeds are, oh look, 700 knots where it is. So and actually what happened was we, um, we, we used to do a lot of affiliation with the Dutch guys, F-16 guys there. And they were, and it, you know, it was really easy for them because they, they're guys, they're good, you know, it's fantastic airplane, F-16. Fantastic airplane, but kind of, we'd work out so that we would get the training, we'd find out where they would be and then we'd come through and we'd tell them we'd be at a certain time, we'd tell them where we're coming from and the rest of it and they used to, you know, get, so they'd go, yeah, there's a bit coming and they'd see us coming, they'd go, oh, yeah, shoot you and it's all kind of, bit, it was a bit easy but we kind of, you know, we'd kind of timed our own hands behind our backs. So suddenly we got to say, we didn't tell them this time. So they reorganised it and off we went. And um, they were expecting us at 420 knots. We're actually going at 600. So they went, oh, okay, we're Brits. And then it ran. <laughs> we'd gone. <laughs> and we didn't gone past them. And in fact, when we came back again, yeah, again, they were still kind of trying to try looking for us over there. And we came up behind them a couple of shots away. And uh, yeah, they wound their necks in. But yeah, the airplane... Again, you, you mentioned about wing sweep and uh, at that speed, 67 wing, because it was clean. It was like a big hawk. It was, yeah, it, it was, it was really responsive, and it was kind of where it, where it wanted to be. 
It was yeah, it was happy as Larry in it. It turned well, and it was, it was a real pleasure to fly it actually, um, in a way that you kind of did, weren't used to having flown it laden with all this all this stuff. Um, yeah, it's good fun. So, do you prefer being a pilot or an author? Um, I think the one comes from the other in that I don't think that since what I write about is flying and both in my own experiences that come into Tornado the Tigris and through the experience of, of that being able to talk to, for example, kind of um, javelin aircrew in their language, you know, I couldn't have been author if I hadn't been a pilot, if you know what I mean. Um, yeah, if I had to, ch- I mean, now I like the idea of, of being an author. Now I like the idea that perhaps that's where a future lies. But it is um, very much based on the fact that, of having been a pilot or being a pilot. And actually, yeah, if I had to, if I had to choose it, it would, every time I'm afraid it would be yeah, fly airplanes. Sadly, I still haven't grown up. I'm still a little boy. hasn't grown up yet. <laughs> Thanks very much for listening. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. And if you want to watch Michael's or anybody else's interview, you can visit us at youtube.com forward slash aircrew interview. Thank you.